Well, I encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our study in Genesis, unlocking the Bible. Thank you, Josh. Just a few things to housekeeping things. We just got to keep mindful of our social distancing. And as we conclude and you're escorted out, we encourage you to fellowship outside. It's a beautiful day outside to do that. Did anybody pick up, do you still have your communion cups at the seats? Okay, so on your way out, if you take those out, and I'll ask a couple of the ushers to have a trash can out there so that you can uh, deposit those in there if you would. And uh, we just got to be mindful. I, I sometimes forget as well, so we just got to kind of keep ourselves uh, accountable to one another. Genesis chapter 3, as we talk about the consequences of fall from grace, what happens as a result of Adam and Eve sinning? It tells us in Genesis 3, verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So as we read last week, we see one of the gifts that God gave us, and we see that verified in Adam and Eve, is that they had a free choice. They had a choice to do whatever they want to do, and God wanted them to have that ability, and isn't it great that we have a free will to be able to do that? But unfortunately, they exercised it to sin, and because of that, they also had another thing that God gave them, and that was a conscience that could tell them what was right and what was wrong. You know, we live in a world today with um, all kinds of viewpoints and alternatives to the worldview that God gives us. And as we think about that and we're born with a choice, we have a choice to decide what we're going to do with that free will. It's like I remind my students at Scott Community College at the beginning of the semester at the end that you have a choice in how you live. And what is a worldview? A worldview is not just so much what you believe, but it's how you live out what you believe. I tell people that's really what your worldview is, is when we see your behavior. That tells us what you really believe. Every world religion and every Um, worldview strive to answer three of life's most important questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? We'll see a picture up on the screen John has for us, I believe. Do you, John? A slide for me? There we go. From uh, the Colorado Spring Sun. It's an article, it's a picture from many years ago. And I know you can't see all the details of that, but it's interesting Uh, how the public schools look at things. Religion is fenced off. It's a dangerous thing. And so, but the other worldviews are all okay. 
You see one ladder that talks about Voltaire, and he was an atheist. You see another ladder uh, of the tree climbing up Karl Marx, Darwin, John Dewey, and other people, the land of ideas. And so one of my classes at Liberty was epistemology, and I won't bore you with all the philosophical details, but it really rounded out my master's degree in apologetics. But basically, it's understanding how we know we exist and how we can verify the fact that we exist. And Christianity tells us and shows us that this isn't a construct that man has made up, but this is the way the world was made. And so in Proverbs 14, 12, it says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. As you see all those different viewpoints, we see people around us in our world that have their ladders up against the wrong trees, climbing those rungs, thinking they're going to find salvation. They're going to find satisfaction and joy. But the only way you're going to find that is in Christianity through Jesus Christ. And that's very important for us to understand. You see Voltaire, one of the signs up there, he was an atheist. And when he was on his deathbed, he said he could feel and feel the licking of the flames of hell coming upon him as he died. He died a horrific death. A Catholic priest came to Voltaire, challenged him to embrace God before he died. He says, now, now, my good man, this is no time for making enemies. He did not want to change. He didn't want to surrender to God. We think of Darwin's view of the world, the survival of the fittest. Led us to some examples of like Margaret Sanger, who started Planned Parenthood. And eugenics, Adolf Hitler bought into natural selection, the survival of the fittest, to create one unique super superior race. And then we think of John Dewey. We think of the Dewey Decimal System in our school's libraries, for example. He was a pragmatist. He was a progressive educator. He didn't believe in any absolute truth, but it was constantly changing, and you needed to be changing with it as well. Karl Marx, he had real contempt for Christianity he said, religion is the opium of society. It's a drug. It causes people to, to think in ways that are not true and not accurate. You're just escaping the real world. He developed the theory you're hearing about in the media, that of critical theory. And that's one of the main premises that Black Lives Matter is protesting about. And so I want to take a few moments and just watch this video for, about this to talk about was Jesus for the oppressed. And what's the biblical idea about the critical theory? Is it really something biblical or is it something rooted in some other worldview that we should not be a part of? And so watch this video from Colson Center, John Stone Street, on what was, is the critical theory biblical or not? You're in a conversation and someone says, since God cares about the oppressed, Christians should embrace critical theory because it's trying to eliminate oppression too. What would you say? Critical theory is one way our culture attempts to explain and confront power structures. Some Christians have embraced it as well, but what is it? To understand critical theory, we need to understand its two primary claims. First, everyone can be divided into two groups, those who have power and those who don't. Second, those who have power always oppress those who don't. But how do we know who the oppressed and who the oppressors are? According to critical theory, the categories of oppressor and oppressed are based on your group identity. Things like race, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual orientation, and gender identity determine whether we are oppressed or one of the oppressors. Of 
course, someone might be part of an oppressed group in one way, but one of the oppressors in another way. That's where the concept of intersectionality comes in. Intersectionality seeks to measure someone's level of oppression based on how many of these groups they identify with. For example, a black man is less oppressed than a black woman, who is less oppressed than a black lesbian. In critical theory, the degree to which you are oppressed determines your level of moral authority. The more categories of oppression someone identifies with, the more moral authority they have. As a result, the experience and perspective of a gay black woman is more valuable than the experience and perspective of a straight white man, regardless of what they have to say. And in the same way, the more oppressed someone is, the less moral responsibility they have for their actions. Those who aren't part of oppressed groups, straight white men, gain moral authority by surrendering to those who haven't, the oppressed. And this is called being woke. Some people claim that since Jesus cares about oppression, critical theory and intersectionality should be embraced by Christians. But critical theory and intersectionality are not consistent with Christianity, and here are three reasons why. First, critical theory offers a different view of humanity than Christianity. Critical theory claims that our identity as human beings is rooted in things like race and gender, features that differ from person to person. The Bible grounds our identity as human beings and the value every human has in the fact that we are created in God's own image. This is something every human being shares. While critical theory pits some groups of people against other groups based on their status as oppressors or oppressed, the Bible says that we are all equal before God. Created equal, equally valuable, equally guilty of sin, equally deserving of punishment, and equally able to find grace and mercy in Jesus. Which leads to the second point. Critical theory offers a different view of sin than Christianity. The Bible identifies sin as anything that violates God's design for people, including unjust oppression of other people. But critical theory identifies sin only as oppression. As a result, advocates of critical theory would see biblical practices such as discipleship, correction, leadership, and reproof as sinful assertions of power if the speaker is among the oppressors, and would excuse sins like jealousy, anger, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, or envy among the oppressed. The Bible says that we are all guilty before God, regardless of social status, race, or economic situation. The Bible condemns oppression as one of, but certainly not the only way in which humans rebel against God. Because critical theory gets the problem wrong, it also gets the solution wrong, which leads to the third point. Critical theory offers a different view of salvation than Christianity. According to the Bible, because we are all equally guilty of sin, salvation can only be found in Jesus through repentance. Our hope is found in being forgiven of sin. Because critical theory teaches that oppressors are guilty and the oppressed are not, salvation for the oppressed is found not through repentance, but in social liberation here and now. Their hope is only through activism. In other words, critical theory has a completely different understanding of who we are, what the problem is, and how to fix it than Christianity. So next time someone, surely with good intentions, tells you that Christians should embrace critical theory because Jesus also cares about the oppressed, 
remember these three things. Critical theory offers a different view of humanity. Our identity is in our status as image bearers and children of God, not in our race, gender, income, or immigrant status. Critical theory offers a different view of sin. Oppression is wrong, but it is a symptom and not the disease. Critical theory offers a different view of salvation. We cannot solve our biggest problem. Jesus can. Our hope is not in our circumstances on earth, but our destiny in eternity. For what would you say? I'm Joseph Backel. So Thanks for watching. I hope you loved the video. And if you did, make sure you hit subscribe. So I know it's a lengthy video, but I think it's important to point out for two reasons. One is we think about Genesis and where we're starting as we think about, you know, how the differences and the alternative worldviews that are out there in our world. We have to be critical thinkers. We've got to avoid being group thinkers and dig into these things and compare them to what the Word of God has to say. So I thought it was a, a good application of that. So today, it brings us to our study in Genesis as we talk about the effects of the fall from grace. And that video talks about some of the effects of the fall, the, the, the tension between people of different ethnicities, of people groups, uh, not recognizing we're all made from one race, the human race, and that we're all human beings. And so we see that we need to be unified because of who God made us to be. So as we think about that, we look at this. Let's look now at the fallout from sin of Adam and Eve. It's extensive, and we're still suffering from the consequences of their sin to this very moment. And we will continue to do that until uh, you know, Jesus comes back and sets up his millennial reign and kingdom. And even during that time, there'll still be sin until the great white throne judgment, and then he eradicates all of sin and casts Satan into hell. Let's look now at the fall and the consequences, first of all, in your outline for the serpent. The consequences for the serpent. He goes along and earlier in this chapter, and he's trying to find out where Adam and Eve are, and he finally has a conversation with them and begins with the serpent. It says in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We see, first of all, the serpent's confinement to the ground. The confinement to the ground. God speaks to the serpent first, and there are words of condemnation for Satan deceiving Eve by using the snake. This is God pronouncing judgment on Satan that will last into eternity. The serpent was already slithering on the ground. It says, dust you shall eat. That literally means in the Hebrew, complete and utter defeat of the, and the absolute diminishing of life until the end of the age for the snake. You know, the animal kingdom is suffering as well as we are as, as, as human beings with the consequences of sin. It says in Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. But one day when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom, New Jerusalem comes down, he will reign forevermore and all the effects of the sinful nature upon the animals as well as man will disappear. It's interesting when you read Isaiah 65, 25, that all the animals will be freed from the curse of sin except for the serpent. Isaiah 65, 25 says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. Just like it said here 
in Genesis chapter 3. These animals shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So what can we be reminded of when we see a snake? Well, it's a perpetual reminder to men and women of the temptation and the fall of humankind. It's a reminder about the power of Satan behind the snake and that men and women will have a continual struggle with spiritual warfare and Satan tempting us until we leave this life and God rids us of evil and Satan himself and sin. But second of all in this chapter, we see verse 15, the cross of Christ brings defeat to Satan. Verse 15 is so important. It's called protoevangelism, which means the first gospel. This is a picture beginning in Genesis, leading through all the rest of the book, the thread of redemption. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, speaking of Christ, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. God is underscoring in this verse the difference in treatment between Satan and the first couple. Satan will be defeated due to one of the offspring of, of Eve who would become the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's going to be hatred and tension between the human offspring, those born of Adam and Eve, and then the offspring of Satan, his fallen angels. We think of the false prophet in Revelation. We think of the Antichrist. All these things create the tension of good and evil in this world. Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus Christ by having him crucified on the cross, but Satan's head will be permanently crushed when Christ comes out of the grave with his resurrection power. So this is a very, very important verse. Rabbis from way back near the time that Moses wrote this verse have supported that thought, the picture of a Messiah coming to triumph over Satan. And they still believe that the Jews do to this day. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, But we see him, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of this suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He goes on to say in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In other words, he defanged the power of Satan when he came up out of that grave and overcame death and overcame sin and Satan's power. So here's the application. Do you see the adversarial relationship with God and Satan from the beginnings of creation? That's important to understand. That's what he's laying out here, that we're going to see this uh, earthly battle that's going to continue on to the book of Revelation. And it begins here in Genesis. I hope you see that relationship that's adversarial with God and Satan. Well, now we turn to God's loving discipline. Notice he condemns the serpent, but he doesn't condemn Adam and Eve. He chastises them. He gives them loving discipline. And we see now the consequences for the woman. The consequences for the woman. Look at verse 16 of Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. First thing we see here is the suffering of pain when giving birth. Apparently, God had said that she would have some pain. It implies here that there was going to be some pain in childbirth, but then he says, after the fall, I'm going to multiply that pain. Now, if you're a man in this building, 
You cannot and don't even try to describe what it must have been like for your spouse to go through labor and give birth. You could get yourself in big trouble. There's no comparison, right? But it's amazing to me, though, after a short period of time, after uh, the, the mom goes through that birth process and all that pain, it's still amazing to me that they see that little child as a joy for their family and a blessing, but then they're even willing to have many times another child after that. They're willing to endure that pain. But it begins here because of the sin of Adam and Eve. They will endure the pain to bring new life of blessing into their family. We see, second of all, the submission to her husband. The submission to her husband. Uh, it's very important, and this is uh, interesting as I've studied this. There's so many opinions about what this verse says, but I'll try to give you the, the best of, the, of those uh, different views. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This isn't a desire for companionship. This isn't her desire sexually. It's a psychological desire to dominate and control her husband. Notice the contrasting clause here. The husband will have authority given to him by God over his wife. The ideal from God's perspective as seen in the Garden of Eden was for the husband and wife to work as a team, to work side by side, to have mutual submission, but yet the final authority was the man's responsibility to make the final decision. So I hope you hear me very clearly here from what I can discern from the commentaries. The leadership of the husband, the man over his wife, is not a result of the fall. Sometimes I've heard that. I've heard that preached. But it was evident before the fall in the Garden of Eden that God gave man the authority and responsibility over the wife. Think about it. In chapter 2, verse 23, he called her woman. He named her woman. In chapter 3 and verse 20, he's going to give her a distinct name, Eve, the mother of the living, as we'll see in just a moment. But what the fall did was that it brought on a woman's tendency to want to dominate the husband. This is where you get so much attention to the idea of a wife submitting to her husband. And for some people, this brings, uh, for some women, it brings irritation, aggravation. It gets under women's skin at the thought and the discussion of submission. But God is wanting to have a chain of authority. And we'll see some scripture here in a minute of how he looks at the church as Christ is the head. The pastors and elders are the under shepherds. Same with the husband and the wife. And so the husband is the one that's accountable, responsible, and he's the priest between God and his wife and his family. In 1 Corinthians 11.3 we see, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There needs to be a chain of authority. Not that the woman is not equal in value and worth. It's just that she has a different role and a function in the relationship. In Ephesians 5.21, many pastors leave out verse 21 when they read this section of Scripture. If you turn there, you'll see there's a heading between 21 and 22. But they all go together in the Greek. It says in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another, husband and wife, out of reverence for Christ. Then he goes on to say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
The husband is to love, to respect. The wife is to submit and show respect. And I wish we had more time to extrapolate this concept of submission. And I've preached on it before and we'll preach on it again down the road. But we need to have a balanced perspective on love and respect, authority and submission, and what that looks like from God's perspective. And he's setting that up in Genesis chapter 3. So here's the application. Joy can be found by women in giving birth and submitting to your husband. You can find joy in giving birth and submitting to your husband. I think that's what God was trying to get across when he pointed out uh, the differences that are going to occur because of the consequences of sin. So notice God is loving and he's merciful in his discipline with this first couple, unlike his condemnation and judgment on Satan. God now turns to Adam for his discipline. We see the consequences for the man. The consequences for the man. God spoke to Adam and he put the responsibility for the first sin upon him because he was the one most culpable for the sin. You see, Eve was deceived. And from what we can tell, because earlier in the chapter we said that uh, uh, Satan was talking to Eve, but also uh, the word you there was in the plural tense. It's implied that Adam was there listening in on the conversation. He could have stopped Eve from eating that fruit at any time. He ate, Adam did, of his own volition and will, not because he was deceived. Therefore, God holds Adam responsible, being the priest, as we said, or the one, the head of the family, and he holds him responsible, and sin passes down to all men because of Adam's decision to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see that amplified in Romans when Paul talks about it this way. In Romans 5, he contrasts Adam and Christ. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, a type of Christ. Therefore, in verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Christ's death on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And we say amen to that. That through the blood of Christ, through the resurrection power, through Jesus being willing to put sin upon himself and be forsaken by his Father for the, to pay for the sins of the world, we have forgiveness of sin. Second of all, we see that Adam will experience pain while he's working. Pain while he's working. So when you're out there cutting your grass, working in your garden, pulling the weeds out of your bed like I do, just remember, it all goes back to the consequence of Adam's sin. It says there in verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So if you're tired of the weeds in your garden, blame it on Adam. No, not really. Because if, honestly, if we were in the Garden of Eden and we were living in that situation, I'm sure any one of us would have sinned at some point or another. But we, we see the consequence of that. 
The punishment was similar to Eve's. Psychological in that Adam and Eve dealt with the tension over the issue of submission by Eve to Adam and what that would look like. The physical pain. It's interesting that pain here, it's the same word that's used talking about multiply the pain of childbirth for Eve. Adam would deal with the hot, sweaty days with weeds, digging, toiling to put bread on the table for his growing family. Notice God told him he could no longer eat of the tree of life because he was going to die at some point. And that leads us to our next point, physical death. The physical death. Pain and work and physical death. You probably, if you've ever been to a funeral, especially to the graveside, you often hear those words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as the pastor commits the body or the cremated urn ashes to the ground. It comes from Genesis 3.19, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. It's interesting that that phrase, return to the ground, is one Hebrew word, and it means gracious provision in view of suffering. It's actually an act of grace, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Gracious provision in view of suffering. And so we think about that, and we think about what one person said about man's ambition. He said, so much for ambitions for divinity. Man may attempt to be like God, but he is dust. And we need to remind ourselves that there is a God and we are not him. And that we are going to return to where we were created from, the ground. So the application here is the toil and the sweat of work brings satisfaction and provision from the man. No matter how hard people try to do away with the idea of the wife submitting to the husband or the men and women agonizing in labor or the pain of childbirth and death, these evils will continue because sin is present. They are the fruits of sin. We see for our last point the consequential move out of perfection. The consequential move out of perfection. Adam and Eve are going to be kicked out of the garden and they're not going to be allowed to return. As we read at the end of the chapter, there's going to be an angel there with flaming swords to protect the garden and prevent them from coming back in. But we see some parting consequences of sin, but also some pictures of grace. So the consequential move out of perfection, the first mother. We see the first mother. In Genesis 3.20, it says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now again, to repeat, Adam called Eve woman first in Genesis 2.23, and now here he gives her a distinct name, the mother of all living. It appears that Adam's faith is moving on. He's moving on beyond the sin, and he's trying to begin life and to begin a family. And he has faith and the prediction the first couple would have and develop a world full of descendants. Eve's faith is very strong. She'll go on to have a son, call him Cain, which means from the Lord, a gift from the Lord. So we see the first mother and how the population will multiply. Then we see the first sacrifice, the first sacrifice in all the Bible. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God shows his fatherly way of mercy by setting the example of forgiveness God shed the blood of animals as a payment or atonement for Adam and Eve's sin. And he grants forgiveness, removing all guilt, 
all sin and shame. Here's the pattern that God set up for the Israelites to follow for granting and receiving forgiveness. Number one, when you sin, it requires a blood sacrifice. God sacrificed two animals, in this case, to cover Adam and Eve's sin. And we'll be reminded in Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. When we stand before God and he's going to ask, you know, what is it that allows us to go into heaven and what's a payment for our sin? He's not going to ask for MasterCard. He's not going to look at your retirement account. He's not going to look at whether your good works outweigh your bad works. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sins, that gives us access. Second of all, God did the work of providing the sacrifice. This is so important. Notice the words in verse 21. It says, the Lord God made and clothed, made and clothed. Man didn't have to do anything. He had to receive the gift of atonement. God is the one who killed the animals, who shed the blood, who created the leather or animal skin clothes that they wore to cover their bodies that now they realize that they were naked because of sin. So through repentance and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we're made as white as snow. It's not based on anything that we could do. Titus 3.5 says that God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we see it required a blood sacrifice. God made the atonement. And in our case, looking back to the cross, he's the one that allowed Jesus to die on the cross. But then God's work of atonement, once accomplished in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, was durable and permanent. It was durable and permanent. Think about it. What did Adam and Eve do when they realized that they, after their sin, that they were naked? They wove together fig leaves. Well, how long is that going to last till they dry out and fall off, right? God gave them something durable and more permanent by giving them either leather or some kind of animal skin that would continue on. God's work is lasting, and he covered the sins of the believers in the Old Testament, but he removed them completely by the sacrifice of his son in the New Testament. Know here that when God forgave Adam and Eve in verse 21, it didn't mean that he was only doing that for Adam and Eve and that no one else would suffer the consequences of sin, but that all of humanity would suffer the consequences as well, but also be available to for redemption by trusting in Christ. So then we see, lastly, the first days of life in imperfection. They're now moving out of the Garden of Eden. Now they're going to live on their own. Yes, they'll still have their relationship with God, but it's going to be different. But God exiled Adam and Eve away from the garden for their ultimate good. He knew that staying in the garden could hurt them more than help them. Think about that in verse 22 of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice what he says. Adam and Eve, they're now like one of us. He's talking about the Trinity. He's speaking to the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. And Adam and Eve, due to their depraved state, would not be able to live 
imperfection even with their knowledge of good and evil. The verse I used last week, Romans 7, 19, we're all in the same boat as Adam and Eve. It says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Isn't that the struggle that we all have as human beings? We want to do the right thing, but sometimes we just give in to the temptations. God's nature is good, and he knows how to avoid evil, but if Adam and Eve ate of the tree of life, they'd be in a handicapped state for all of eternity, and God did not want that to happen. Think about it in your own life. We should, you, at least I am, I'm thankful that God doesn't let me do all the things in my mind that I want to do. He saves us from ourselves sometimes. And that's what he's doing here. Can you imagine Adam and Eve living in the garden with that sinful nature and that separation from God? And he's doing them a favor by moving them out. They were forgiven by God, but now they possess a fallen nature. They cannot live up to God's standard. Matthew 5.48 lays it out. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. They lost the intimacy in their relationship with God when they disobeyed him. So in the best interest of Adam and Eve and their descendants, God removes them from the garden. It was an act of divine grace. They were restricted from the tree of life and would die physically. They would not have to endure suffering forever, but they would have the ability to be born again spiritually. And because of regeneration, they'll receive a resurrected body at death it would enable them to once again eat of the tree of life as we see in Revelation chapter 22. Adam and Eve had the privilege to see children born and Eve experienced the miracle of childbirth and the joy it brings and the human race will continue and endure and the ultimate victory of Christ over Satan will be realized and mankind will be offered the gift of redemption. In Ephesians 4.24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so our application is this. Do you see how God still pursues redemption of man beginning at creation? It's an amazing story that right from the beginning, that's why I called the series The Unlocking of the Bible. You see from the beginning and then it just flows out from there in many different ways how God desires to bring redemption even though men and women have sinned. Do you see how God still pursues redemption of man beginning at creation? The key thought then today is this. We see the threat of redemption beginning here in Genesis by God as man falls from grace. As man falls from grace. And it's interesting how God meets out his loving discipline and chastisement and his condemnation on Satan. Think about these things. You'll see them on the screen. Retaliatory justice. Adam and Eve sinned by eating and they would suffer in order to eat. They would have to work, they would have to toil, they'd have to deal with weeds and, and, and insects and bugs and all these type of things. Second of all, Eve gave her husband the fruit to eat that led to his sin, and there's going to be a tension with the wife under the authority of the husband. The serpent, Satan, destroyed the human race, and he will ultimately be destroyed. God's an amazing God at how he uh, works and moves and carries out his work. Some questions to ponder this week as we, we close. Do you see the power of darkness and light and contention in our world today? I hope you see it. I hope you're a critical thinker. I hope you look at the, through the lens of God's word and God's perspective to see what's going on in the world around us. 
Second of all, despite the consequences of sin, can you find joy in God's working in this fallen world? He's still doing amazing things. There's revival going on in different places. I just watched a video this week of a group meeting in Huntington Beach, I think it is, and they're meeting on the beach, and they're having worship because they can social distance outside, and they're baptizing people. So God is still at work. And are you thankful for God's loyal and pursuant love toward all mankind? That from the beginning pages of the Bible, God's desire is for all men to come to faith in him and to provide the way to do it as a free gift, not based on works. Let's bow for prayer. Wow, there's a lot of application we could take from this message, but I hope that you will, first of all, be thankful. Thankful that God gave us the promise in Genesis 3.15 that his son would come and crush Satan's head. And it gives us great hope that if we possess that resurrection power, we can overcome the temptations to sin, this temptation by Satan, the temptation of our sinful nature. Thank God for that today. And also thank God for his mercy, that while he lovingly disciplines us to bring us back in relationship to him, as believers, he doesn't just let us go and follow our desires, but we have the Holy Spirit and circumstances that he brings stop signs into our life to remind us of his mercy and his love to draw us back to him with open arms. We can be thankful for that today. Father, as we sing this last song, I pray that we would just think about all that you began at creation and how it all flows out in detail through the rest of the pages of the Bible. But Lord, we see from beginning to end, your heart is for your creation. Lord, help us to be filled with awe and wonder of that and to sense our worth because of who we are in Christ and that you're pursuing us in love. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and that those who are away from you would come back like the prodigal son and restore that relationship. And if there's someone here today that just needs to confess an area of their life, Lord, may they do that as sin and to sense your mercy and your love today. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.